Well, good morning. Uh, as Grant shared earlier, uh, we're struggling with voices today. Uh, how many of you guys have had that what's going around? Yeah, I know. And uh, of course, it always settles in on a Saturday night, just so that God can show his grace more. Right? Isn't that true? Oftentimes, I'm praying this morning, Lord, I, I, may I, I always rely on your grace, but even more so this morning, just because I'm going to push my voice as hard as I possibly can, and hopefully you'll be able to hear me, and we'll praise God for it, right? Amen. Grab your Bibles. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Yeah, so not a lot of flowery stuff today, because I need to try to maximize my words. Let's just dive right in. How's that? It's good? This morning we've arrived at a particularly difficult section of Paul's letter to the Romans. One that has a rich history, both in terms of scholarship and also controversy. Whenever you sit down and you plan out a preaching series, there's always those passages you look forward to and you say, ooh, that's going to be fun. Or that's going to be really hard. Well, this one's sort of a mixture of both dread and excitement. Because this is not just a hard passage to read and understand. It's a hard passage to explain. We're going to try to do that this morning. It's only 10 verses, but it's so full of theological data that honestly, if I wanted to, I could probably get four or five messages out of this one passage, out of 10 verses. It's, it's that detailed. So, of course, what I'm going to do is do it in one Sunday. Okay? And there's a reason for that. We're going to survey this passage from about 30,000 feet rather than get down into the muck and look at every single detail. And honestly, I'm choosing to do it that way because my hope for you guys as our congregation is that you can understand the flow of this letter. So we don't want to get tripped up on too much detail here because I really want you to see how Paul is entering into this passage and how he's going to leave it. And we'll talk about that next week. So we're going to hit on the big ideas. Don't worry about that the corporate aspects of sin and salvation, but we're not going to have time to expound on every little nook and cranny and every nuance of this passage. So if there's something that you want to talk about this week after the service, I love to get an email and we can dialogue about, about something that you feel like I skipped over. How's that? Is that a promise? Good. So let's briefly talk about where we were last Sunday, where we landed, and where we're headed this morning. We left off in verse 11, of course, and that's where Paul speaks of you and I as believers, how we ought to rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He ends with that. We ought to rejoice in God through Christ because it's through him that we've been reconciled to our creator. That's good news, right? Once, he says, once we were enemies of God, very strong word, okay? Not just falling slightly short of friends, but, but enemies. We were rebels operating out of the opposite camp adversaries of God. That's what the word means. But now through the work of Christ, God has bridged that gap between himself and us. And we've been reconciled to him. That's amazing stuff. We have peace with God now. If you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were once an enemy, but now you have, you have peace with God. Almighty God, the God of the universe, the war is over. Man, that's amazing news, right? We're not just friends of God, because that would be enough, right? We could, we could celebrate and worship the fact that we're, we're friends of God, but even more, we're sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Christ, with this amazing inheritance that awaits us, all because God decided in his grace to reconcile us to himself. That's amazing stuff. 
The other big thing we did last Sunday is we looked at all the verbs that Paul uses in verses 9 to 11, the verbs in the original Greek, how he demonstrates God's sovereignty in all of these things, in justification, in salvation, and in reconciliation. God, we saw, was the active initiator of those things. And we're put in the passive position based on the verbs that Paul uses. God is the active initiator of all of those things. Again, what are they? Justification, salvation, reconciliation. And we are in the passive role being acted upon. And so God initiates and God finishes. And we found out that our part is simply this. And you'll see it at the end in verse 11. We simply receive the gift. That's the one active thing that we do in, those, in, in salvation. We receive the gift. Isn't that great? It says right there at the end, verse 11, we have now received the reconciliation that's been provided by the Lord. So I'm going to be doing that a lot this morning. So <clears throat> sorry about that. So with that being said, now where does Paul go with this flow of thought beginning in verse 12? I'll be honest with you. Some people are very confused by these 10 verses. Very confused about why Paul decided to go in this direction. In fact, many commentaries have been written about it, many articles, even books have been written about it, trying to discern Paul's reason for going in this direction. And too many people, in my opinion, have come to the conclusion, well, Paul's just going off on some rabbit trail, but I disagree. I think that's short-sighted because from the way I read it, the way I see it, verses 12 to 21 fit in perfectly with Paul's discussion of both salvation and grace. So before we read the passage, before we read it, let me give you a preview of some of what Paul is saying so that you can sort of see it as we read through the passage, okay? Here's what he's basically going to do. In fact, let me put this on the screen. These verses deal with the two key figures that are involved in the universal drama concerning the gospel, concerning eternal life and eternal death. The first man in the human race is one, and the other is the savior of the human race. The first man, Adam, serves as the biological head and representative of the fallen human race. The savior, Jesus, serves as the living head and representative of all those who are redeemed and justified by God all whom the Father has chosen, okay? So in these verses we're about to read, you're gonna see Jesus described in terms of being like a second Adam. There's the first man, the first Adam, and then there is the second Adam. And where Adam, the first Adam, failed to obey, the obedience of the second Adam overturns the sentence of death that hangs over the head of the human race. And a central point to keep in mind as we study this text is that Paul is speaking corporately here. He's speaking corporately. What does that mean? It means that all human beings stand in relation to one of those two men. Every person that's walked the planet, even today, right now, stands in relationship to one of those two men. Either you belong to Adam, and this morning you remain under the sentence of death because of his disobedience, or you belong to Christ, and you have eternal life because of his obedience. Does that make sense? And believe it or not, what I think that one of the big questions that's going to get answered in these verses is this. Why can't we save ourselves? Why can't we save ourselves? Because this verse is going to tell us why. Now, this is something I feel like the commentators miss in this passage. But I think, and we'll come back to this later so you can see where I get that. But I think that's a big question that gets answered. Why can't we save ourselves? Now, I'm going to do something I did not plan to do. I'm going to have somebody come up and read the passage. Chris, you want to come up? 
Thanks, man. Just because I'm going to save my voice for the, on these 10 verses. He did not know I was going to do this. 12 to 21. Use the mic there. <clears throat> I'll be over here recovering. Thank you. We can, you can clap for Chris. Well done. That's a, that's a hard passage to read, right? Oh, we have so much to talk about here. Let's go back up to verse 12 now. We're going to spend a lot of time on verse 12 because that's really the key verse in the whole passage and actually where most of the, the, the interpretive difficulties come. So look at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Now, for us, there's not a lot of surprises in that statement, right? As those who believe in the, the inerrancy of Scripture, the, the literal interpretation of Scripture, we believe that Adam was a very real historical figure. And we believe that through his disobedience, sin did enter into God's perfect and good creation, right? Now, does that mean that, that Adam was the first sinner? No, Eve was, right? Ladies, let me hear it. Okay, but <laughs> I'll pay for that one later. But Adam bore the unique burden of headship in the garden. Guys, do you hear that? And he's held accountable for their failure to obey God's command. In fact, according to Genesis 3.9, after the fall, when God came looking for this couple, and he said, you who? <laughs> he didn't say you who. He said, where are you? He called to the man, didn't he? Yeah, he called to Adam. And so Paul is following God's lead here in Romans 5 by, by holding Adam responsible. And the point, by the way, isn't that women aren't responsible for their own sin. The point is, is that God holds men particularly responsible for their unique role in leadership and in protection and in provision. We also believe that death is the penalty and the punishment for sin, as the verse says, right? And by that, I mean total death. What is total death? We're talking both spiritual and physical. That that is the wage of sin, right? And so through Adam's sin, Paul writes, death spread or death came to all men. And of course, that's a reference to all of humankind, both male and female. So not a lot controversial there, right? But this is important. Adam is the one in whom the entire race of men, both male and female, is identified. That's important to understand. We're identified in Adam as we're born into this world. He's also the one in whom we suffer the curse and the wages of sin, which is death. Hear this now. All those that Adam represents are under God's wrath. Let me say it again. All those Adam represents are under God's wrath. And the reason that Paul is showing us this is so that we'll appreciate how, how grave the predicament is that we're in as human beings. Your problem and my problem isn't that we just do a few sins here or there. That's not our problem. Our problem isn't just that we make a, a mistake every once in a while. or we just, we just, There's a couple parts of our life that we need, to, we need to tidy up. In reality, our problem is universal and all-inclusive. In Adam, we all die. That's what Paul wants to tell us here. And if we don't get that right, guess what? We won't get the gospel right. So know that first of all. Now, again, not much controversy here there, but we come to the clause at the very end of verse 12, and this is where the difficulty begins. 
Therefore, just as though through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, here it comes, because all sinned, dash. You see it there? You have a dash at the end of that? Because all sinned, and you get this dash, and you're going you're gonna to find that dash, unless you have a Christian standard Bible, you're going to find that dash, and I think it accurately represents a break in Paul's thought process. That's why it's there. It's a break in his writing. See, the typical pattern for him would be to, to, to do this thing that he often does and other biblical writers do as well. If you look up at the beginning of verse 12, he says, just as. So something should follow the just as. Just as, so then, right? Or just as, so also. But Paul doesn't finish the thought. He's not gonna finish that thought until verse 18, okay? And this is sometimes the way the Holy Spirit carried along the biblical authors, all right? So, and there's, there's, there's a reason. The question is always asked, why does he do this? Why does he stop his thought there and then launch into this explanatory section of scripture? And it's probably because he realized as he wrote those words, because all sinned, that he now ran the risk of being misunderstood. There was something that he needed to clarify. And we see that happen from time to time in scripture. What Paul needs to clarify is that phrase, because all sinned. What exactly does he mean by that? And if your first inclination is to ask, well, Jeff, what's the tense in the voice of the verb? Then you were paying attention last Sunday. Good job, right? Because we found out how important that was last week. Well, hamartano is the, is the, the verb in the Greek. And the form that is written in here, and this idea of sinning, is what we call the aorist active. Here's what that means. This is important. This sinning was something that we all actively did at a moment in past. Let me say it again. Something we all actively did at some moment in the past. So what's Paul getting at here? Well, a couple theories on this. Many have taken this to believe that Paul simply is saying, well, Adam sets the example for us here. He introduced sin into the world, and every human sin that came after that is just an imitation of what he did. Okay? It's we follow in his footsteps. And so that's why people die, because people sin personally and they sin individually. And that's true, by the way, right? The wages of sin is death, and we sin personally, and that's why we die. But this very simple idea of the fact that, well, Adam's just our example, it doesn't fit the language. It doesn't fit the context or the the contrast that Paul's about to draw. Another view, which is common among Roman Catholics and also Protestants who are Arminian in their theology, is when it says all sin, they believe that Paul is describing personal sins that came about because we've simply inherited a sin nature from Adam, that he has given us a bent towards evil. And that also is true that we've been corrupted by the fall. But again, that doesn't really that doesn't respond properly to the way Paul writes us, to the language there, nor does it correspond with the contrast that he's going to draw later on. And so here's the difficulty. Here's the challenge, and you're going to have to really think long and hard about this and guard your heart as I say this. This is why Paul felt the need to stop his thought and clarify. Both the language and the context tell us here that this is what Paul meant that we all sinned in Adam. We all sinned in Adam. 
Adam is our head and our representative before God. And his sin is imputed to us as human beings. In other words, it's reckoned to us. It's credited to our account. That's a tough thing. Universal condemnation and death is God's judgment on penalty on all of us. All of us, because we were in some deep and mysterious way that maybe someday when we get to heaven, God will explain to us, we are united to Adam in his sinning. Thus the language, and read it again, death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned in that moment. All of humanity was found in Adam in that moment. This is what we call the doctrine of original sin, right? It shouldn't be that controversial, but when you put it in those terms, it sort of jars the mind, doesn't it? Now, I know some of you are already thinking, I don't like that. That does not seem fair, but hold that thought, because by the time we're done, I think you'll take that back, if you're talking about fairness. So hold that thought. The reason we sin is because we're sinners, right? Think about this. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's our nature. Why? Because we're united under Adam's headship and under his failure in the garden. Now, you and I know that each of us has enough personal sins to condemn us, right? It's not like we could say, oh, can't believe that I'm, Adam's imputed sin is, you know, his sin is imputed to me. I've got plenty of sins from my own. I don't think it's anything to boast about, right? But there's enough that we've done personally to condemn us. And there are many passages in the Bible that tell us about where we've fallen short, right? And where we've sinned. But Paul's point here, get this, is not to talk about your individual sins or my individual sins. Paul is saying you sinned when Adam sinned. If you're alive, if you're breathing, if you're sitting out there in the chairs, you sinned in Adam because he is your head and he is your representative. Notice what Paul writes in verses 15 and 19. I'm going to put five verses on the screen. And what you're going to see is five different times Paul referenced Adam's one sin and zero times reference personal sins. This is important to understanding why I come to that interpretive conclusion. Look at verse 15. By the transgression of the one, the many died. Verse 16. Judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. Verse 17, by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Verse 18, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Verse 19, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Do you see the theme? Over and over again. Every statement in this passage focuses on how Adam's one sin in the garden impacts all of us. We were made sinners in that moment in the garden. Condemnation came to all of us. Death came to all of us in that moment. Long before we were even born into this world, Adam's sin was imputed to us. And so we step back and we go, okay, now I see it, Paul. Now I know why we can't save ourselves. Think about it. We're involved in something that is so much bigger than us. The scope that Paul is talking about in these 10 verses couldn't be larger. It's so much bigger than us, so much deeper than our outward 
decisions to sin. We need to be rescued from the outside. We can't do it from within. It's too big. See, the core of what you are, your nature, will never be changed if you go out today and say, I'm going to try harder to be good. And by the way, that's a good thing. If you, want, if you say, I'm going to strive this week to obey God, that's great. It's not going to change the core of who you are. It's not going to change your nature. Your nature's not going to be altered by you saying, well, I'm going to turn over a new leaf now. Or, or I made some New Year's resolutions, so I'm going to do better. It doesn't change your nature. It's so much more radical than that. It goes to the very heart of who you are. It goes to the very heart of the entire human race. Adam stood and fell in the garden as your representative, and we are guilty in him. That's what Paul's saying here. Interestingly, he uses verses 13 and 14, which are not on the screen, to make his case further. Here's how his logic goes. He says, the wages of sin is death, right? So there must be sin in order to be there to be death. But he says the Mosaic law wasn't given until the days of Moses, which is somewhere around 1500 BC, right? And yet people died between the time of Adam and the time of Moses. How is that possible? There was no law yet. And the implication is that even before the law was given, so the people said, oh, now I see what the law is. They died. Why? Because the sin of Adam had been imputed to them. They were suffering that penalty. Now again, did they have enough personal sins? Of course, to condemn them, of course. But the sin of Adam had been imputed to them. They were under his representation even before the law was given. There's an application for us today. Think about this. When we hear about the tragic death of an infant, we say, well, look, the wages of sin is death. Well, how does a one-day-old sin? How do they consciously choose to sin? They don't. Then why do they die? Adam's sin is imputed to them. That's why. Now, we trust that God is merciful, right, in those situations. We trust the character of God that he's full of mercy in those horrific circumstances. But you see the parallel here. Law or no law, Adam's sin is imputed to us. So let's come back now to that issue of fairness. You say, I don't like this imputation thing. I don't want it. It's not fair. I don't understand how Adam can be my representative. It's not fair. 6,000 years ago, I wasn't, I wasn't even close to being born. Well, let me ask you this. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Yes. Were you alive 2,000 years ago when he died and was resurrected to life? No. Is the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you? Do you celebrate that? Good. See, imputation goes both ways. If you object to the one, how can you receive the other? Here's what Paul's saying. Only if Adam represents you in the garden can Jesus represent you on the cross. The imputation of his sin is a horrible thing. The imputation of God's Christ's righteousness to you is far greater. It's good news. Jesus' obedience his righteousness, his suffering, the penalty for sin. Those were works of a representative head in the place of his people, right? How many of you guys want to be part of that representation? Right? Amen. Now, by the way, does that help the fairness issue? 
It, it, I mean, it does when I think about it. Because I get it. I, I'm, I'm not happy that, that Adam did that. <laughs> oh, wow, sorry. Oh, thank you. Do you see how they did that? Well done, Glenn. I once heard somebody say that everybody that goes through the pearly gates of heaven gets to slap Adam one time on the way in. I don't think that's true, but boy, it'd feel good, wouldn't it? I might have to edit that out. Now, so, so far now, there's been a whole lot of talk of sin and condemnation and death, right? But let's look deeper now at what Paul wants to communicate here. Adam is a type of Christ. Paul says that in verse 14. But Jesus is much greater. And this is a big part of what he wants to tell us. Beginning in verse 15, as, as Paul establishes the truth about Adam's imputed sin, then he brings in Jesus and says, hey, look at the parallels here. Look at the contrast between these two. I'm going to put some more verses on the screen. But let's look at the goodness of, of the free gift that's in Jesus. Verse 15. Transgression of Adam brought death. The obedience of Jesus brought the free gift of grace. Verse 16, Adam sinned, bringing condemnation. Jesus obeyed, bringing justification. Verse 17, by, <coughs> by, the one trans, by the one transgression of Adam, death reigns. By the one act of obedience of Jesus, grace and righteousness reign. Verse 18, the offense of Adam brings judgment. The righteousness of Jesus brings justification. Verse 19, by virtue of Adam's disobedience, we're made sinners. By virtue of Jesus' obedience, we're made righteous. Verse 21, through Adam's sin reigned in death. Through Jesus, righteousness reigns unto eternal life. Those are big contrasts, aren't they? Why does Paul use so many of them, right? That's what you look at this. First time you look at this passage, you're like, it feels redundant. Why is Paul saying these things over and over again? What does it mean in scripture when we see what we, what we perceive as redundancy? Emphasis. Paul's saying, don't miss this. I'm saying it all kinds of ways. Don't miss it. I, the redundancy is intentional. He wants us to see how important this is. He wants to show us the big picture, which is the greatness of God's grace expressed through the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, we can forget this, can't we? This is why we preach about it all the time, especially in a gospel-centered church like ours. We can get blasé about grace. We can even begin to feel entitled to it. And it's no longer surprising to us. Grace should always surprise you, right? We can get blasé about it. Well, of course God forgives. We can actually say that in our hearts. Well, of course God gives mercy. Isn't that his job? Right? But we can get that way in a church like ours. We can take it for granted. So Paul's undercutting that attitude. Remember what God has done for us because grace is utterly amazing. Grace is utterly surprising. It's unexpected. It's greater than anything you or I could ever dream up on our own. Paul's calling the entitled believers to realize that and he's calling those who haven't yet bowed their knee to Christ to come and take a taste of it. Taste God's grace. See that it's good. There's nothing like it in the whole wide world. See, universal judgment is not surprising. Do you realize that? It's deserved. That's not how the world thinks. 
but we know better, right? It's, I mean, look around the world today. Have you seen the news? It's, it's bedlam out there. It's chaos. And we used to, 10, 20 years ago, we'd say, out there, it's chaos. It's chaos in America, right? It's getting worse. Have you seen the news? War, genocide, rape, murder, torture, brutality, corruption, crime, poverty, disease, racism, hate, arrogance, viciousness, coldness. How can you not see that this world is ruled by the wicked? How can, right? The only answer we have is from scripture that the Satan has blinded the eyes and the minds of unbelievers. We see it. It's a mess. It's run by wicked people. And so there's nothing surprising about the bad news because condemnation is utterly deserved. It really is. But forgiveness and grace and mercy and salvation, those things are amazing. They're too generous, aren't they? They're so undeserved. They're so unearned. To those of us who read our Bibles, to those of us who understand both theology and anthropology, grace ought to always be surprising to us and amazing to us. I mean, maybe you've, ever, you've talked to somebody. I've talked to people like this. They say, I think it's unfair and unloving that God would send anyone to hell. I, I can't worship a God who would send people to hell. And you hear in Paul's words this. Look, if you're going to complain about something being unfair, then complain about God extending grace to you. Right? Complain that, that God lets anybody into heaven if you want to talk about unfairness. There's absolutely nothing in you or me whatsoever that would provide a basis for God pardoning us from our sins. And yet that's what he does. That should be, <laughs> that should be utterly surprising and amazing to us. It's the greatness of his grace. Don't forget it. You ought to feel something with that. I know. Don't talk about feelings, Jeff. Come on now. We're a thinking church. Man, you ought to feel something in that. It's all right. It's from the Lord. You ought to feel something in that. You ought to feel incredible, gener- incredible gratefulness that God has poured out his grace upon us. All right, now that brings us to really the, what I think is the biggest idea in this text. So hear this now. What Christ has done for all who are in him, and again, we talked about there's people in Adam and people in Christ. For what Christ has done for those who are in him is far greater than what Adam has done for all those who had followed in his sinful pattern. The obedience of Christ is vastly superior to the disobedience of Adam. Paul wants you to know that. The righteousness imputed to those who are in Christ is vastly superior to the sin that's imputed to those who are in Adam. The life that comes to those who are in Christ is vastly superior to the death that comes to those who are found in Adam. See, the point here is not simply that Jesus' work cancels out Adam's. Okay? That let's say we're at a negative 10 with Adam, but then we get 10 points from Jesus and we're back to zero. That's not what Paul's saying here. We didn't just regain what we lost in Adam. It's way bigger than that. Look at, look at the beginning at verse 15. The free gift is not like the transgression. See it there? What's the free gift? And 
imputed righteousness of Christ. And that's the polar opposite of transgression, right? But Paul's saying even more than that. When you compare those two things, the imputed righteousness of Christ with the transgression, that righteousness is far more certain than the transgression. It's far greater, much more, much more, right? Paul writes in verse 15 and in verse 17. The gift of grace in Christ is incomparably greater than the condemnation that came from Adam. It's amazing. Here's how one scholar put it. He says this. It's not just that Jesus Christ has put the lid back on Pandora's box. It's better than that. He's liquidated our debt. He's absorbed our penalty. He's acquitted us in court. He's transformed our hearts. And he's put a stop to the immutable pattern of sin and judgment and condemnation. It's vastly superior. Far greater. Much more. Verse 20. Look at the key here. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, what happened? Grace abounded all the more. Man, underline that. Highlight that. Grace abounded all the more. Now, some people find it weird. Okay, Paul, you were, you were writing this passage and suddenly you put the law back in there. Throws everybody off. Like, why, why re-inject the law? Right? But we have to remember, we found this out in chapter 2, there are certain people in the church at Rome in that day who were Jewish believers. And they were relatively new Jewish believers. And so they still had this sort of, um, this passion for the vindication of the law. It still meant a lot to them. They, they didn't just become Christians and let go of all of their past. And so they're very concerned about the law. And so Paul wants to shock them here. And he does shock them. He says, look, do you understand? One of the purposes of the law is to increase the trespass, right? Increase the transgression. Now, why would he say that? He's reminding his audience that the law that was given to Moses is not our savior. It cannot save. We already saw this in chapter two. It has no power to save. What what power it does have is to teach us and to show us our sin, to convict our hearts. In fact, the very presence of the law provokes us to sin more. And you know this. Don't touch those cookies. Ooh, I want a cookie. It's in every kid. I mean, if you're not a parent yet, you'll, you'll see this. You start saying, you know what? Uh, don't eat those peas. Reverse psychology. You know, just try to mess with your kids. Because as soon as you lay out a command, your kid and us as adults, we want to break it. So the law provokes us to greater sin. It provokes our minds. It makes our, it actually, the law makes our sinful condition even worse. So Paul's saying, look, God's solution to the predicament that you're in, the fact that you're in Adam, his solution is not the law. It's grace. What does the law do? It's like a mirror, right? That we hold up and we go, ooh, that's the real me. It's like when you wake up early in the morning and you pass by that mirror and you're like, ooh, Oh, you don't do that? <laughs> Come on. You look in the morning, you're like, wow. <clears throat> wow. It's a mirror, and it shows us the real us. And when we see the real us, get this now, when we see the real us, we know that we need grace. That's when we know. And of course, when we, we finally give up trying to change what we cannot change, our nature, and we see our need for grace, the obvious question is, well, then how do I how do I grab hold of that grace? 
And of course, that points us to the Savior, right? He's the only remedy for this predicament that we're in. We've got a terrible representative in Adam. So change the representative, right? That's the solution. That's how we lay hold of God's grace. Don't you love that statement? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, right? Wherever sin increases, grace superabounds. It goes way beyond it. Don't we sing these lyrics? Listen, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. And this song, what riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins there are many. His mercy is more. His mercy is more. You ought to feel something in that. You ought to feel something in that. His grace superabounds to you in those darkest moments of your life when you fall into sin and you cry out to him. The more sin is multiplied, the more it's shown to us, the more aware we become of it, the greater the grace that conquers it. Now contrast that great truth with how, how, how we tend to deal with our sin and our shame. We deny it, don't we? We obstruct. We hide from God and we hide from each other. We pretend it's just not there. Why? Because we don't want to look bad in front of other people. So we ignore it, right? We put it aside. But grace, grace knowing that you ought to be rejected by God because of who you are. Grace knowing that you ought to be rejected by other people if they really knew who you were in your heart and mind. In that moment, grace comes in like a flood and it conquers all of your sin. And it's not because God didn't know what was going on. Like God didn't know your sin. He didn't know your heart. He knows you better than you know yourself. God knows things about you you haven't figured out yet. Did you know that? It scares me. (laughs) And yet his grace comes to us still. And he says, child, I know exactly who you are. I know exactly the way you are. And still my grace is sufficient to conquer all of your sin. Super abounds. So the lesson here, you guys, is don't run to your obedience. Your obedience is the problem. Don't run to your good works. That's the problem. Don't run to your emotions. Those are the problems. Run to Christ. Run to his grace. Because that's the only solution for your sin. Amen? I want to wrap up by looking at that last verse because it gets even better. That's why this passage is so great. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at the beauty and the horror of that verse. The reign of sin versus the reign of grace. And the reign of sin, folks, is an ugly, ugly thing, right? 
Sin, sin's relationship to a man who's outside of Christ, to a natural man, is like the reign of a tyrant. Sin controls you. It dominates you. And you don't stand a chance against it. If you could picture sin as a weight, far heavier than what you weigh, and it's just flat on you, and you're on your back, and you can't get it off, and you never will. That's what sin is in the life of a natural person. And that's the picture that Paul gives us here. Total domination, and there's nothing you can do about it. And then it gets worse. Not only do you fight that all of your life, he goes on to say that the result of that reign of sin in your life is total death. Physical death, but eternal death as well. Sin so often paints itself as something desirable, something that will give you freedom. Go ahead and do what you want. Right? It's your life. It's your body. Do as you please. You'll find freedom here. You'll find all kinds of satisfaction here. Don't worry about those Bible thumpers who tell you otherwise. Go for it. Sin presents itself as so attractive, but the result is total death. And as you go down sin's path, you never are satisfied. You need to... You need more and more to reach satisfaction. Eventually, you won't be satisfied. And then there's this principle of self-destruction that's woven into sin. As good as it looks, as much as it promises, it slowly destroys you. You're destroying yourself. It takes you apart bit by bit until your soul and body are dead for eternity. A Puritan writer once wrote this. Look at how sin has reigned unto death in history. It's written in every hospital, in every disease, in every groan, in every tormenting apprehension awakened by a guilty conscience, in every prison, and in every graveyard. That's the epitaph on human nature and human life. The reign of sin. But aren't you glad Paul doesn't leave us there? Right? That's not the end of it. The reason he speaks of this reign of sin is because he wants to now show you the contrast, the glory of God's grace. Think about this. No man was ever more miserable than the prodigal son when he realized what he had done. Isn't it a great story? What he'd done to his father. Here was a young man. He came to understand the reign of sin in his life and it broke his heart and it crushed him. I knew I was going to cry at this part. I think it's the cold medicine. (laughs) Or I'm just getting old. It crushed him. But because he understood what sin had done to him, it made the sight of his father's outstretched arms that much sweeter. Because he understood sin in his life. He realized he didn't deserve such a gracious father. He didn't deserve to be welcomed back. He didn't deserve to be celebrated over. That's the glory of God's grace. You think about the tax collector from the parable in in Luke 18. This tax collector, he's hated by the Jews. He's a betrayer of his own people. And he's at the temple and he's struck by the Holy Spirit and he sees the weight of his sin. And how does he respond? He prays, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Meanwhile, the self-righteous Pharisee says this, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like him. I pay my tithes. I fast twice a day. 
He turns to his works. See, that Pharisee could never know the reign of grace because he never understood the reign of sin in his heart. But precisely because the tax collector had recognized the reign of sin in his life, the reign of grace became so sweet to him. You see the principle? Friends, in Adam, we all die. Like it or not, he's our head. He's what we get. He's our representative. And our very nature comes from the fall. And so we can't save ourselves. It's too big. We can't save ourselves. We have to turn to another. Is that fair? Your condemnation is fair. Being justified, being reconciled to God, receiving his grace, that is not fair. But it is surprising and amazing. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ, you're on the fence, you're, you're just asking questions right now, you, you stumbled in here, you don't know why, and, you're, and you just want to know more about this Jesus, you can hear this sermon today and you've got two choices. Number one, you can grumble and gripe about the unfairness of this. And you can continue to live under the reign of sin and meet your death, both spiritual and physical. Or two, you can be like that prodigal son. You can be like that tax collector. You can recognize that right now you live under the reign of sin and you can turn to the one who provides the solution. Trust me when I say this. His grace is greater than all of your sin. So come experience the glory of that grace. That's what Paul wants to tell you this morning. It's ugly what we have in Adam. But it's beautiful what we have in Christ. You bow your heads.